I wanted to talk uh, to come back to uh, liberty and equality, which is uh, where we started. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, we've talked a lot about liberty, equality, and equality uh, in various, uh, uh, histor- under various historical circumstances uh, throughout, uh, throughout this class. So uh, we'll come back to them uh, briefly today as we uh, look from the perspective of 1896, uh, both backwards and forwards in American history. Now, by 1896, uh, the United States uh, bore little resemblance to the uh, struggling infant nation uh, we first encountered in 1789 and that I talked about in, 17, about in the context of 1789. Virtually everything, so it seemed, had changed and had grown and had expanded. The population had grown from about 4 million in 1790 to over 70 million in 1896. In 1790, 13 states hugged the Atlantic coast, but by 1896, the nation occupied the geographic area that uh, it does today, from ocean to ocean, manifest destiny come to fruition with 45 of the present 50 states uh, already admitted to the Union. Uh, uh, Only Oklahoma, New Mexico, Arizona, and of course Alaska and Hawaii were not in the Union at that time. All possible competition for geographic domination in that area was gone. The British were gone. The French were gone. The Spanish were gone. Mexico was gone. And, of course, the Indians were vanquished and confined to reservations. And the United States was secure and even isolated in the context of 1896 within its own borders. Now, economically, America in 1790 had been a nation of small farms, small shops, uh, with a large percentage of its population engaged in subsistence agricultural production reliant on Europe, especially Great Britain, for manufactured goods. Still in a colonial economic relationship with Great Britain, despite its nominal political independence from Great Britain, trading raw materials for manufactured goods. But by 1896, the United States was the world's biggest industrial power, and a nation whose people had accepted and sometimes embraced the market revolution and its consequences, and of course we talked about that as well. The United States was now a nation by 1896 uh, with which other nations were in a colonial relationship. The United States was an economically self-sufficient nation with a huge internal, meaning United States, market for its own manufactured goods as well as a producer of enough food through commercialized agriculture, and we talked about that as well, to feed the rest of the world. In 1790, America looked to Great Britain for capital and finance for money. By 1896, the United States had not only uh, become the home of a financial and capital structure that provided funds for its own huge industries, the steel industry, the railroad industry, oil, But the United States was also the banker to the world, the financier of the world, exporting capital, so to speak, to a host of other countries, the way you would export steel or export automobiles in the 20th century. Countries to which these 
funds were flowing, uh, they had become dependent on American uh, dollars, American money, to spin the wheels of their own economies. In 1790, the majority of Americans lived in rural areas, a living embodiment of Thomas Jefferson's Republican vision for the nation, another thing that we spent some time with. But by 1896, America's cities were teeming, and it would not be long before the number of Americans living in cities outstripped the number of Americans living in rural areas. Technologically, in 1790, America followed the world, especially Great Britain. If you remember, Samuel Slater came to America uh, with the British plans for building a factory in the United States in his head, the British plans. But by 1896, it had been reversed. The world followed America in inventions, in communications, in transportation, in industrial uh, production techniques. Americans were on the cutting edge, the leading edge of progress. They were the innovators. They were the chance takers. They were the leaders. And of course, between 1790 and 1896, America changed demographically as well. In 1790, it had been basically a nation of Protestants. And whatever immigration there was had largely come from Great Britain, more Protestants. By 1896, however, a great wave of non-Protestant, non-British immigration had washed over the nation, first from Ireland and Germany in the 1840s and 1850s, and then from Italy, from Russia, from Eastern Europe in the 1880s and beyond that changing the face of America and presenting the first of many questions of national cultural identity, of what it actually meant to be an American. Questions that we still wrestle with today and probably will always wrestle with. Politically, of course, the years between 1789 and 1896 had also seen tremendous transformative changes in the American nation. In 1789, which was the uh, year that George Washington uh, became the first president, there were still property qualifications for voting in virtually every state. But by 1896, universal white male suffrage had made America a much less unequal and much less hierarchical place, at least, of course, for white males. And a political democracy for those white males, if not an economic democracy. And, of course, in the debate over uh, uh, an eventual abolition of slavery, America had faced and eventually faced up to the ultimate challenge to match the egalitarian words of the Declaration of Independence with deeds. In the process, fighting a civil war that destroyed a hierarchical, feudal social structure in the South and replaced it with one in which a strong national state guaranteed a broad array of national citizenship rights, defined in large measure by the single most politically transformative and expansive measure ever adopted by the American people, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, uh, which was adopted, passed in 1868. Although 
the full implications of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution would not be realized until the 20th century. And although it would also take until the 20th century for the federal government to assume its dominant position in America's political and economic life, it was the Civil War and Reconstruction period, as we have seen, that set the stage and established the precedent for this to eventually, in the 20th century, occur. And, thanks in large measure to the Civil War, by 1896, there was no question that the United States was a nation with a national identity and not just a loose association of states, as many in the South had argued. No one, for example, uh, 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 after the Civil War, began a sentence with the words, the United States are, as had been the custom before the Civil War. Now it was always, the United States is. Okay? You notice the change in uh, punctuation there. Uh, in an acknowledgment of what had taken over 600,000 American battlefield lives uh, uh, in the Civil War to accomplish. The United States is, singular, a nation. Even Southerners, by 1896, uh, viewed themselves in national terms as citizens of a nation with a common history, common icons, common myths, uh, and as foremost, the, uh, as for, uh, foremost, the world's first functioning representative uh, democracy, first and foremost. An experiment, a democratic experiment, that had come close to failing on numerous occasions, as we have seen between 1789 and 1896, during the War of 1812, during the Missouri Crisis of 1820, during the nullification controversy of 1832 and 1833, during the Crisis of 1850, during the Hayes-Tilden election of 1876 and 1877, during the Free Silver Argument, and of course, most importantly, during the Civil War. But a democratic experiment which, despite the predictions of European royalists like Arthur Fremantle, who's a character in the, uh, uh, the British character in the uh, Killer Angels, uh, their predictions that it would fail, that this democratic experiment would fail, uh, it had, by 1896, confounded much of the world by surviving and even flourishing. And yet, even in the midst of all this growth, in the midst of all this expansion, all this change, and yes, all this accomplishment, there was much in America in 1896 that had not changed from 1789, and many questions that had not been answered. America in 1896 was still wrestling with the same issues of equality and liberty, still trying to understand them and understand what they meant, and how to apply them to a variety of circumstances and to each other. Issues that had tortured Washington and Jefferson and Hamilton in the 1790s. Jackson and Clay and Calhoun in the 1830s. And Lincoln and Garrison and Fitzhugh in the 1860s. Americans in 1896 still wrestled with the idea of liberty and equality as questions without answers, as paradoxes, as ironies. 
America was committed to equality. But what kind of equality? Equality of political rights? Equality of economic rights, of social standing? Equality of opportunity? Equality of result? America called itself an equal nation, yet it would not permit half of its adult population, women, to vote. America called itself an equal nation, but it did not permit one-third of the population of the South, African Americans, to vote. Or, for that matter, for them to ride on the same streetcars, eat at the same restaurants, or stay at the same hotels as whites. America called itself an equal nation, but still observed a social hierarchy with white Protestants at the top looking down that hierarchy at Catholics, at Jews, at Asians, at Mexicans, and at blacks, each of whom were viewed as occupying a descending step on the social hierarchy, on the social ladder. In 1896, for example, no one who was not a Protestant had ever been nominated by one of the two major parties for the presidency, never mind elected. And America called itself an equal nation, where a man had an equal chance to make his fortune, to be successful, to become rich. Remember what Joshua Chamberlain told, told, said to his men about America, what he told his men in the Killer Angels. This is free ground, he said. We read this. No man has to bow. No man born to royalty. Here we judge you by what you do, not by what your father was. Here you can be something. Yet, millions of Americans in 1896 were permanently trapped in poverty, caught in a system of industrial capitalism that gave them no chance to make anything of themselves except a factory worker. And separated from the industrial capitalist elite in America by an income gulf, gulf that was so vast, it was almost as if the worker and the capitalist lived in different countries. And the word liberty elicited similar ironies, similar paradoxes. America called itself a nation of liberty, of freedom. But remember that Southerners defined this word before the Civil War as the liberty to hold slaves. And other Americans after the Civil War defined liberty as the liberty to deprive uh, uh, Indians of their land uh, 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 and of their liberty, putting them on reservations. And by 1896, members of the upper class, the industrial capitalist class, the factory owners, the financiers, not to mention the Supreme Court of the United States, defined liberty as business doing whatever it wished with its property, even if that meant paying workers wages that no one could possibly live on, or throwing them out into the street if business conditions so dictated. Did liberty in America mean the liberty to starve in the street? Was George Fitzhugh right after all? And if the government state tried to help that man who had lost his job and was starving in the street? Was it preserving liberty or destroying it? Interfering with private property rights, freedom of contract, freedom of choice? 
or protecting that man's liberty to work, to earn a decent living, to eat. Americans searched for answers to all of these questions about liberty and also about equality in 1896, just as they had in 1865, in 1850, in 1815, and in 1789. The specific context of these questions changed, of course, but the questions themselves stayed the same. And it's possible that they were meant to stay the same, that they were built into the American historical experience, wired into the infrastructure of the country, so to speak. Because if these questions dominated the 18th and 19th centuries in America, and they did, they also have dominated the 20th century, and will dominate the 21st. And it is also possible that Americans, whether living in 1789, in 1896, or 2008, for that matter, are not meant to find final and definitive answers to these questions of liberty and equality, but instead search constantly for elusive solutions, because this may be built into the American historical experience as well. The answers, as the existentialists might put it, lie in the journey, an uncompleted, ongoing, uniquely American journey that, with all its tragedy and inequity, still represents, in Abraham Lincoln's great phrase, the last best hope of Earth.